welcome to Standing at the Edge. I'm your host, Casey Stratton. We are in Season 1, Episode 3 of the podcast. We've got a lot to talk about today. My naughtiest cat is in my home studio with me right now, so she might make some noise. She climbs all over everything. She jumps on stuff. She just wants to be wherever I am, and when I'm talking especially, you should see us try to do a Zoom meeting. As soon as any of us starts talking, she goes racing to get in the frame. Like She just needs to be part of it. I don't know what it is. Um, I, she can be downstairs with me on the couch, and then her name is Rosalie, and then my husband will be upstairs, and I'll hear him start talking, and off she goes. So she's around. She's a handful. We'll get into that at some point. Probably not today. Uh, modern world stuff, just to check in. Obviously still in the pandemic. Still a lot of unrest. Uh, President Trump had a rally in Tulsa. It's just like, really? Like, no masks, no social distancing. I just am so afraid of what's going to happen in the U.S. because we just aren't paying attention. It's like we decided it's over when it's not. And all the states that are not doing aggressive measures, you're seeing the cases just rise and rise. And you know now we've got the European Union thinking of not letting Americans in July 1st when they ease restrictions from other countries. So it's just like, what is going on? I think we've learned that the lie that we were told about America is a lie. I think that that's what we're seeing. At least that's the way I'm feeling it. Um, we're brought up to believe that we're the most exceptional nation and that we're so free and we do all this stuff. And, but, but I don't know. It's just like we've become so individualistic that we can't do what's right for the collective anymore. So that's been frustrating, honestly. I've been tired. I've been sleeping a lot. I don't know about you guys, but ooh, I've been sleeping a lot more than usual. Or I get up in the morning to feed the cats and then I just go back to sleep for another three hours or so. Um, so yeah, really wondering what's going to happen when I return to work. I don't know. Right now the plan is August 1st, but I'm gonna have to work remotely for a while. So I'm gonna have to get back in the swing. Not really. I don't know. I'm thinking about a lot of things. I'm spending a lot of time reflecting and this is all going to tie in this week because, um, after the heart attacks, which we talked about last week, and then I had to have spinal surgery very shortly after that, like a year later, uh, I really had to like decide what matters to me and what doesn't matter to me and really reprioritize things. I guess all of that's very normal after a near death incident, especially when you're younger. Um, me being 40 and 41 when I had the heart attacks really got me thinking about stuff. But right now I'm just trying to get through day by day you know, week by week, I'm, I'm nervous about what's going to happen. I'm nervous about how many unintended victims of COVID-19 there can be because people are being so selfish and it's hard to see social media. It's hard not to feel angry a lot or feel sad or feel hopeless or angry. I guess I said angry. <laughs> I'm going to say it again because I'm angry a lot. Anyway, so we're going to talk about my life post heart attacks and that's going to be this week's topic. So let's dig in. So last week, I talked to you about finding out that I had had two heart attacks and being in the hospital and having what's called a heart catheterization. They went in, they saw the damage, and they put two stents in. And I mentioned how when they did the catheterization, for some reason, I was fully alert and I can still remember it. Um, I'm not, I wasn't supposed to because the drugs they gave me are supposed to cause um, amnesia afterward. But uh, I, I really was into it. And I'm, I forgot to tell you last week that when they got the stents in, it's kind of like they're fishing because they're like, they'll chuck it in there and then they don't like exactly how it's placed. So they pull it back out and they throw it back in again. So they're kind of like casting a reel. 
So when they got the stents where they wanted them, we were all high-fiving, which was really funny to me because I had gone into that experience terrified. So that's a good example of sometimes when something that truly scares you can actually turn into something that's not so awful. Um, and, and that takes perspective and experience. So I was into it. I was into like the first three. And then after that, I was like, eh, just give me enough to go to sleep because I've done this. I've seen my heart enough times. Um, but it is really cool, the technology. So I went home uh, the day after that. Uh, and, ooh, things were strange. I remember just feeling like nothing was the same. My house didn't feel the same. I'd be lying on the couch and just kind of look around and be like, this is where I live? Like, something feels so different and wrong. And I was just really unsure. I was really dreading going back to work because I wasn't getting along with my boss before all this. And I was just afraid of the consequences of being off for so long and then just having all these new things in my life that I was going to have to deal with. Uh, I was radically changing my diet. They wanted me to lose 15 pounds, so I lost 25 because I'm an overachiever. Now I've gained so much back during COVID that I just yesterday I was like, okay, this stops now. I'm going back to eating in a more healthy way. The problem is I think I'm experiencing trauma in this time, the collective trauma, as well as re-triggering my own trauma of the last few years, already feeling so difficult. And then we have a, a global pandemic on top of it and civil unrest and the awful feelings of seeing black people murdered constantly by the police or civilians or whatever's going on it's just nuts so i've been just eating whatever sounds good which you know is junk let's be, let's be honest but after the heart attacks i was scared right i'm like okay i gotta do this and i'm the kind of person i do something all the way or i don't really want to do it at all i'm kind of all or nothing and I've been like that my whole life. Um, I think that's a large degree t as to why my musical career was what it was or is what it is, I guess, is that I was very ambitious and I was very driven and I worked really hard, long, long, long hours because I was all in. So I come home from the hospital. I change my diet. I'm just trying to rest. I've got, you know, people coming over all the time, bringing me stuff, just really nice, you know, cards or gifts or just family and friends coming to hang out with me. It's funny how the world has changed because I just thought, why was I letting all those people in my house? Because COVID-19 wasn't a thing yet. So I had a lot of visitors, but over time, I just started feeling really depressed and irritable, mostly irritable, but definitely the sense of doom almost. And I had felt the doom actually. And I know that that's a, another symptom of heart attacks, but for like the two weeks that I was waiting to figure out what the heck was going on, I remember being really afraid to drive fast. And I'm like pedal to the metal most of the time to my own detriment. Like I have to put the cruise control on so I don't speed so much. Um, but I was scared to drive fast on the freeway. So I knew something was, was off. And that feeling kind of continued. I just wasn't sure. And then uh, I got a call that I was going to start cardiac rehab on January 3rd of 2018. Cardiac rehab is where you go and you work with a physiologist and a nurse and a team of people usually, uh, and they get you exercising. But slowly but surely, you have a heart monitor on. They start you really slow. It's 30 minutes. Uh, you go three times a week for eight weeks, most people. I ended up going for a lot longer. We'll get into that. So I go in and I start cardiac rehab and I really like everybody, the staff, but I had real trouble connecting to the other people in cardiac rehab because I was generally far younger than everybody else. And I think my attitude was a little more strict than other people. So when we would have like a nutrition class, they some people would really push back like no i'm eating white bread i'm not going to switch to whole grain like really or like i drink a can of coke every morning and i'm still going to even though i'm diabetic and just had open heart surgery and it's just like they're 
testing their sugar and it's off. And so I was coming from a place of judgment, like real true judgment. Like what is wrong with you people? I don't understand how something like this can happen to you and you can just act like, well, I'm not making any changes. It's too hard. But I've come to get to know people who have suffered these kinds of things or survived them, I guess is a better way to say it. I've come to know a lot of those people. And I think what happens is that for some people, they really are just stubborn. Other people think if nothing changes, then I don't have to face that this happened to me, which I can totally understand. And I think other people are just afraid. So change is scary. So there's a lot of reasons why people are in denial about it, I think, sometimes. And denial being the other one. Like, they're just like, nope, I'm going to be fine. It was a minor blip on the radar, even though all of us were there because we had suffered a heart attack or open heart surgery or something like that. So I did that for eight weeks, but I end up having symptoms again. I'm still having chest pain all the time. I don't know what's happening. Uh, February 2nd, I end up in the hospital again from cardiac rehab, um, and they did another catheterization, and there was just a little bit of clotting happening in my stents, but it was fine. So we're still just like, we don't really know what's happening, but why am I not getting better? Um, and everybody else is, and I'm doing all the work times 10. Like, I feel like I, this is, I'm going to be real. I'm feeling like I'm doing all the work and other people's on top of it and doing everything I'm told and doing everything right. And the pounds are shedding and I still can't go very fast on the treadmill. And then I start kind of just plateauing. Like I still have chest pain sometimes, so I push through it, but I've kind of learned by now when I need to go to the ER, which is usually you err on the side of caution and you just go. Cause they would rather me come in there 10 times and have it be nothing than not go in the time it is. And I'm still kind of grappling with that because the times that I've had to go to the hospital and we find out that it's nothing, or one time I had a panic attack, we'll get into that probably next episode. Um, I feel super guilty, like I'm wasting everybody's time. But I have to remind myself that these are doctors, they want you to have a good outcome and they're getting paid the same, whether or not I'm having heart attack three or not. So um, around April of 2018, my brother was graduating from college and I had to park really far away from the arena where it was being held and I'm walking and I start feeling the pain in my hand again and the pain at the top of my chest and I'm like, what is going on? I'm just like at my wits end, like this cannot be true. So I start devolving. I start, my symptoms start coming back and they start getting worse and worse, not as fast as when I had had heart attacks, but I was, they called it, my my symptoms were progressive or something like that, I remember my, my doctor saying. So I reach out to the cardiology department, my cardiologist's office, and they're just like, oh, it's probably nothing. You're young, so you think that every little ache and pain is another cardiac event. It happens all the time. And I'm like, no, I'm telling you, I'm doing all this exercise. I've lost 15 pounds at this point and I'm getting worse. This doesn't make any sense. I'm hardly eating any sodium. I hardly eat any saturated fat at all. Everything's low fat. Everything's low sodium. I'm like, this is something's wrong. And they're not listening to me. So finally, I complain enough that they had me do another stress test. And this was just like a, a regular stress test. And it came back abnormal, but no one told me that. I had to find out by like demanding my primary push the results through to my portal so that I could see it. And then my physiologist at rehab went over it with me and told me what was going on. So I, at this point, it's a week since the abnormal result came in and I haven't heard anything. So I call the cardiologist's office and they're like, well, what do you want us to do? I'm like, something? How about you do something? Because my symptoms are back. They're getting worse by the week. 
and now I have an abnormal stress test. And I had had a stress test in February that was normal. So I'm like, something's not right here. And they're just like, mm, we'll get you scheduled then for the total occlusion because I still had 100% blocked right coronary artery because the hospital where I had my first surgery doesn't do the procedure where you have a total blockage. So they, they had, I had enough of what's called collateral blood vessels moving blood around that they didn't think it was a huge problem. But they're like, okay, if you still have symptoms, maybe it's your RCA. We'll get you scheduled for the surgery at this other healthcare provider uh, where one of our doctors who has privileges will, will do the surgery. So I wait another, I don't know, week, and I get a phone call from scheduling, and they're like, um, we can't schedule your procedure because you haven't seen your cardiologist. Why haven't you seen your cardiologist? I said, that's a good question. You tell me. I don't know. So I'm mad at this point. And I'm just like, what? So they schedule a surgery in like July, like July 20th or something. And at this point, it's like the beginning of June. It's like June 15 or 14. So middle June, mid-June. And I'm, I'm like, July 20? I'm like, this is crazy. And I'm just really getting frustrated, but I don't know what to do. And my cardiac rehab team said, you need to get a second opinion. And I had a friend who had been a cardiac nurse for a doctor who he highly recommended, but it was in another like healthcare corporation. So I went to my primary. I said, I want a referral to this exact cardiologist. And at first they made a mistake and just referred me into the same to a different cardiologist in the same office as I was currently in. I said, no, I want to be referred to this exact person. So she did it. My primary is amazing. I go in and I see this cardiologist. They get me right in. When I tell them on the phone about my symptoms, they're like, come in tomorrow. So I go in the next day. I meet Dr. Wolschlager is his name, Kevin Wolschlager. I owe him my life. Oh, no. So I go in and so I go in. Ooh, I'm getting emotional. I go in and I see Dr. Wolschlager and he's like drawing me pictures. Like this is what the arteries look like and this is where they go and this is where you had the blockage and these are where your stents are. And I'm just like, okay, this is the kind of care I should have had from the beginning. Like he's walking me through everything and he's like, listen, yeah, I think we should deal with your total occlusion, but your stents have a 20% chance of closing. And I'm like, What? Because they knew I had to have spinal surgery or would likely have spinal surgery, they didn't do the regular kind of stent that has this like medication in it. They did what's called a bare metal stent, and those have a higher rate of closure, which is why they don't really use them anymore. But if you're going to have to go off blood thinners within a year, they give you this other kind of stent. But no one ever told me that there was a 20% chance of it closing. So he says, we got to go in, we got to take a look. So a week later, I'm on the books, you know, one week from that appointment, they go in, they look, my stent one of my stents is 90% closed. So he says, you might've had a week before you were gonna have your Widowmaker completely closed and you would, have be, you would be dead. So that, that's why I get emotional when I talk about it because if I hadn't had a team of people around me who convinced me to advocate for myself and get a second opinion, I would not have made it to July 20th. There was no way. So if I had just done what I was told or believed what they believed about me, then I wouldn't be here today. And so that created like this third wave of trauma and like my identity is just shaken to the core. Like, who am I? And like, I can't believe this is happening. And I can't believe that I would have died of a third heart attack if I hadn't gone in and found a doctor that actually listened to me. And so... I went and told my primary what had happened because anytime you have a, I had a procedure back then, I'd ha it would automatically trigger an appointment. And my primary doctor was so furious 
so furious that she she was like, I need to write this all down because I don't even know if I can refer patients to this other doctor anymore. So saved my life, Dr. Wolschlager at West Michigan Heart. Ooh, they're the best. They're always friendly. They're so caring and thoughtful and kind. I, I met very few people that weren't in this process, but again, like I had people around me saying, hey, you need to do what you need to do. And I don't know if I would have had that kind of self efficacy if I hadn't had people kind of cheering me on who I trusted and who were part of my medical team and friends who were nurses and things like that. So super intense. Meanwhile, while this is all going on, second part of this week's tale, uh, I go out maybe March. I go out with a friend named Sean, who I work with. Um, but I've known him a long time at this point. We've worked together forever and we're just really, we're really close. We go out for drinks a lot or go out to eat after work or whatever. So we're hanging out at this really cool bar called Sidebar where they make these like gourmet signature cocktails and um, just bougie enough for me, you know, and we're sitting there and he's like, listen, you're 41 years old. You live alone. You don't have a life partner. What is your effing problem? And I'm like, you know what? I don't know. That's a good question. And so I start thinking, we're talking that night and I'm processing. And I'm like, you know, this all probably would have been a lot easier if I hadn't done it living by myself. So I decided that I was going to put myself back out there. I hadn't really seriously dated in a while. Uh, I had seen someone for about six months, about a year earlier. Didn't work out. And then, you know, for years, I'll just go on like dormant mode. I'm just like, forget it. I don't need a relationship to be whole or whatever. It's just not something that I really felt like I needed. So I still kept that attitude. I was just like, I'm just going to see if nothing works out, nothing works out. But at least I can think and tell myself that I made an effort. So, ooh, against my all my inner instincts and insecurities and weirdness, I get on the apps. You know, if you're a gay guy, you know, or if, even if you're not, you probably know. There's apps. People use them. I wasn't there to hook up with anybody. I was very clear about that. I was interested in real dating. So I met one person, and we started dating, and then he said, I said something like, oh, I'm really starting to have feelings for you. And he said, that's sweet. <laughs> so I knew right then. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. We're not there yet. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to try something I've never done before. And I'm going to juggle. I'm going to date more than one person at a time. And I had never done that before. I had always like, if I would meet someone, I would see it through and is it going to work or not? But I'm like, it's 2018 at this point. I'm 41. I'm just going to, you know, play the field. So I go back on the apps and I see this guy who I think is so adorable. So we start chatting on the app and we're having a good rapport and he tells me his name is Kurt and we make a date to have drinks after work, happy hour. So I'm at work and I'm so nervous and my coworkers are like, I can't believe you're so, like, we've never seen you so nervous about anything. I'm like, I don't know. There's just something about this guy. I can't explain it, but like, he's so cute in his pictures. And then when we were chatting, I just felt like we had this rapport and it was really easy to talk on, even on an app, which I don't like doing. And so I'm all excited. And then an hour before he cancels he says that he has this like work thing. Oh, and I'm like, well, we could meet later. Like, I'm so desperate to meet him at this point because I just spent all day working myself into a tizzy only to have him cancel. And he's like, no, I, I, it'll be too late then. So let's just do it another time. And then he like disappeared. I never saw him on the app again. 
So I jokingly said at work that he was option B. And then the next person I met on an app and went on a date with was option C and option D. And I got up to option K. And <laughs> I really liked option K and things were going pretty well, except the day before I was going to have my heart surgery to see if I was dying with the one I was just talking about where they found that my stent was 90% closed. He texted me like three emojis. Good luck. Like that was it. And no follow up. We never actually texted again because I was so like, really, that's your response after we've been dating for a good little chunk of time here is three emojis. I don't think so. So that was over. So this is June 21 that I have the heart catheterization. On June 24th, I am on the apps and I see that Kurt is back. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And this is like, you know, two, two and a half months later. It was early April we were supposed to go out. So yeah, two and a half months-ish. And he's like, hey, how, you know, I just want to say that I'm really sorry. I wasn't in a good place at the time. It's not the way I would normally be to cancel at the last minute like that. I just wasn't, I wasn't in a good place. So I went off the apps because it just wasn't a good time for me to be dating. And I just want to let you know that I'm really sorry. Well, by then I had been like stood up twice. I had some horrible, horrible dates. Maybe I'll tell the story next week of one of them. And I'm like, dude, it's fine. I was mad then, but now people have done so many worse things. I don't, and you know, it's fine. At least you canceled. At least you told me. At least you didn't leave me sitting at a restaurant with a drink in my hand for two hours like other people did. So uh, he says, well, you know, if you still want to get a drink sometime, I'd love to do that. And I'm like, yeah, sure. Let's do it. So we move to texting, which if you've done any online dating, you know, like that's the big moment when you go from private messaging on the app to actual texting with someone's phone number. So we text and then uh, this is a Sunday, June 24, and we make plans for Wednesday to have uh, drinks. And then Monday morning, one of us texted the other, I can't remember who, and was just like, oh, I just really, I'm really excited to go on a date with you. And I wish it could be sooner. And I'm like, well, I'm not working right now. And he's like, oh, I'm not working right now either. Actually, I'm between jobs too. So I'm like, well, let's just hang out now. So we made a date for lunch and we met at the restaurant. I remember he was already there. I came in and we hugged and I knew, I knew right then I was like, this is it. This is it. So we had lunch that turned into let's go grab some afternoon wine. And we did that. Then we came back to my house and hung out on the front porch and talked. And then he had to go to this thing he had like every Monday or once a month or something. So he went to that and then we met up again after that. So then I know right then I'm like, okay, if we're on our first date and we decide that we need to like circle back because, oh, I have to leave for two hours, but come right back after that. Yeah, it's going to be good. So we ended up spending like the whole day together. And then I had to do a performance at this thing called the diatribe. Um, uh, It's a nonprofit called the diatribe and they have this event. Um, And I was going to do a song of mine because it was like LGBTQ theme. So he came with me with that for to that. And I'm like surprising myself that I'm allowing someone I'm on my first date with to like see me perform because that's not my thing. I'm not like, hey, I'm a musician. Like we were just joking the other day that it took me like a week or two to even tell him that I had ever been signed to Sony because I just don't want it to be about that. Um, so he shows up that day and we and I just know it. And then we're inseparable from that moment on. 
he must have slept at his own apartment maybe two or three more times after that. And the rest is history. We've been together two years um, as of the day of this podcast comes out. June 25th is our two-year anniversary of our first date. And we have so much fun together. We still laugh a lot. One of my moments of pure joy is when we're both laughing at something the other person said. And then one of us goes, oh, I love you. It's very cute. But And I'm not normally like that. I'm not usually like laughy, giggly, touchy-feely, like in a relationship uh, eventually. I'm going to be kind of like, get away from me. Don't talk to me. Leave me alone. Don't touch me ever again. So we're still very touchy-feely, lovey-dovey. We have to kiss every day. And we in the pandemic, we've been trying really hard to hug because normally one of us comes home from work or something and we hug, but it doesn't work like that anymore. So we're like, oh yeah, we have to hug it's because we're the only people that we can touch. So I don't know how I would be getting through this time if it wasn't for him. And Sean always takes all the credit as a joke or maybe not. He's like that. He's like, you're welcome. But literally, if he hadn't had the guts to say that to me, I wouldn't have gotten married, and I never thought I would get married. I was, in fact, always saying, even if marriage was legal for me, I'm not doing it. I'm never doing it, and I said that all the time. But this whole experience made me realize that I can't say never anymore because I've made so many changes. I don't work more than 40 hours a week. When I, If I've been at work for eight hours, I'm going home. Some days I don't even do that. Some days I'm like, I gotta go home early. It's just the way it is. And luckily my employer now, the YMCA, they're very understanding and I'm salaried. So if I need to move my time around, I move my time around. I know what I need. I give myself that. I listen to my body. And I've had to learn that this is my identity now. I'm somebody who has aggressive cardiovascular disease, which my cardiologist says all the time. And I'm like, I know you don't need to say aggressive. It's my second cardiologist. I have a, what's called a preventative cardiologist as well. And he uncovered the reason why this all happened, which we'll get into next week. Um, but it, that came further into my relationship with Kurt and kind of affected everything again. It messed with my identity all over again because I was just getting used to being someone who was a little more compromised, somebody who had to make certain choices at a restaurant, usually not what I wanted to eat, but what I had to eat health-wise and had to exercise six days a week and all this stuff. And, and I was just wrapping my head around that when we found out what was actually going on that was causing me to have aggressive cardiovascular disease. So that's going to be my little teaser for next week. So let's talk about it. So next week, we're going to talk about me having the surgery a little bit, like post-surgery trauma, and how that messed with my identity again. And then we're going to talk about me getting a new job and the stresses of that and the good, the good and the bad and the ugly, and then getting married and how that all came to be. And I'm pretty sure next week is the last week it will just be me. I just have to wrap my head around some of the technology pieces of trying to do remote interviews during COVID where people can call in and I can record it that way and just figuring out how I'm going to do all that with the audio. I have some ideas. I've done, I've read a lot of blogs. But uh, yeah, I'm really enjoying having these conversations, quote unquote, with you. I know they they go one way, but I enjoy your comments and messages that I've been getting. Um, and again, you can always email me at podcast at caseystratton.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Casey Stratton, Facebook, Casey Stratton Music. Please subscribe to the podcast if you want it to just neat and tidy, show up in your box, <laughs> show up in your, your podcast app on Thursdays, and hopefully we won't have any delayed episodes. The computer I record on has a boo-boo. Something's wrong with the memory, so I'm 
getting an appointment scheduled to have it serviced. So I might have to skip a week if it's out at the shop at the computer hospital, or I'll have to record this old school or new school, I guess, with my iPhone and not through professional recording equipment because I make it right now with Pro Tools in my home studio. But yeah, thanks for being along for this ride and letting me process some stuff and get a little emotional with you. And I really hope that you're doing okay and that you're doing whatever you need to do to take care of you, take care of yourself. So stay safe, stay well, see you next week.